0: Hello and welcome to The Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in today's episode, I'm joined in The Penguin Studio by an editor and author who's showing no sign of going out of fashion. She's the longest-serving editor of British Vogue and has documented the Style Bible's centenary celebrations in her book, Inside Vogue, A Diary of My 100th Year. She's Alexandra Shulman. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Richard. You've been editor-in-chief of Vogue since 1992, Has 2016, the 100th year British Vogue, been your most demanding yet?
1: It's certainly been the most fascinating year of my editorship. There's been so much to do. We've had endless and different kind of celebrations and ways of commemorating the magazine. And I knew that it was going to be hard work, but I don't think I realised quite
0: how much there was going to be to do. Okay. to sum up, in the run-up to British Vogue's 100th birthday celebrations, you've overseen a centenary issue, including a royal cover coup, planned an exhibition, a festival and a gala dinner, organised numerous events, been followed by a TV crew for a documentary, and flown round the world on international fashion weeks. Let's dip into your book, Inside Vogue, as you wonder whether you might enjoy a quieter life. (laughs)
1: 2016, January, 3rd of January, back to work tomorrow, I'm absolutely terrified of what I need to achieve in the next six months or so because so much of it is out of my control. I want everything that we do to be really extraordinary and have the very best people included in it. I want Vogue 100 at the National Portrait Gallery to be regarded as a benchmark in the history of magazine photographic exhibitions, my festival to be clever and lucrative, the gala dinner to be gossip-worthy and glamorous, the centenary issue to be exceptional, and the BBC documentary to make Vogue look intriguing rather than foolish. After 10 days break, I woke up this morning and went to the farmer's market in the pouring rain. I stewed some apples with cinnamon, put on a stock to simmer, and wondered whether it would be possible to have, and if I would enjoy having, a life of just reading all the books I've now got piled up on the big table in the bedroom, and do very little work. I could run every day, make vegetable soups, let my hair go grey, and... and then what? Would I be content? David who had just woken up, said that for thousands of years, philosophers have pondered this same question.
0: Have you come up with an answer to that question yet, Alex? Would you be content with a quiet life?
1: I haven't come up with an answer yet. Increasingly think I probably wouldn't be content with a quiet life. It's hardened it to get the perfect balance so that you're not constantly feeling that you're rushing through your life. I think that's what... Years like this make one feel that you're just rushing without being able to really experience what you're doing. And in a way, that was one of the great things about writing the diary was that I do kind of remember it all in a way that I don't think I would have done if um, if I hadn't
0: written it down. But I don't know. I, I haven't had a quiet life, so I don't know whether I'd be content with it. You brought along a number of objects of the Penguin Studio that have helped shape your career and your book. Now, I imagine your first object helped you to get through some of these hectic days. Tell me about your relationship with your coffee maker.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm a, a lark rather than an owl, and I can't really do anything at night. So I wasn't able to write the diary at the end of the day when I came back, I had to get up early in the morning to do it before going to work. So the only way I was kind of able to power myself through getting up earlier than I already would have was with coffee. So I thought that the coffee maker, which is one of those Italian stovetop Mm -hmm. coffee machines, was a very kind of relevant part of the book. And I do think that the sort of ritual of making coffee is really important. And I've tried different ways of making coffee with you know a cafetiere with filter papers with the stovetop and I think they're all enjoyable but there's something particularly satisfying about the noise that you hear when the water bubbles up through the stovetop one the thing I can't bear are the pods you know the coffee machines with the pods by that American
0: actor (laughs) who we won't mention so on average how many cups of coffee would you say it takes to power one issue of Vogue has anybody oh, ever counted? Oh,
1: what a good figure. That's a really good statistic. <laughs> well, I reckon I drink about four cups a day. So if an issue takes 30 days, that would be 120 cups of coffee.
0: Is the correct answer. <laughs> now, are you as exacting about making the perfect cup of coffee as you are about couture? I'm probably
1: more exacting about making the perfect cup of coffee because... I'm not making the couture I'm seeing what somebody else has done, and generally sort of gasping in amazement at what they produce and the incredible imagination and inventiveness of designers that they carry on having to produce something new all the time it's not even twice a year now I mean people do collections three, four, five collections a year and they do men 's wear and they do women's wear and You know, the demand always to have a new idea is... I wouldn't want to have that stress.
0: My idea of a nightmare. But one of the highlights of your year was managing to get the Duchess of Cambridge as your cover star for the historic centenary issue, something that you managed to keep under wraps for months. How sure were you that you could pull it off? I had written to the Duchess to ask whether she'd
1: be on the cover of Vogue, and she'd always said, No, like she had to every magazine. This time, I thought, because we did have this special issue to celebrate 100 years, but also because we had this big exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery where she's a patron, Mm -hmm. I thought there was a possibility that there might be more of a reason for her to do it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote, but actually I didn't hear back, and I'd pretty well forgotten that I'd even written the letter... And it was only when we went to the National Portrait Gallery to launch the exhibition at a press conference in September that Nicholas Cullinan, who's the director of the National Portrait Gallery, came up to me and said, Oh, I think, you know, I think we're going to be working together on your June cover with the Duchess of Cambridge. And it was a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful surprise. And then for one reason or another, we couldn't photograph her for quite a long time. So I always think things are going to fall through. Mm -hmm. So until it actually happened, every day I thought it was going to fall through. It was only when I was actually there on the shoot and it was happening that I realised that the shoot
0: had taken place. (laughs) Let's listen again to an extract from the audiobook of Inside Vogue. Here you are in a field in Norfolk overseeing the Duchess's shoot.
1: We've already agreed that we'll keep the cover loose, rather than having a formal pose, but sometimes enforced informality creates its own problems and insecurities. We drink coffee and chat until the small team the Duchess has with her arrives, and finally our subject herself, her hair in big rollers and her lovely, bright, inclusive smile is walking through the door behind Mandy Tucker, who is wheeling a small case of hair products. The Duchess looks really pretty and attractive, in a parka, skinny jeans and boots, and greets everybody in an easy way, having met Josh and Lucinda and several others the previous day. Lucinda and I have been through the clothes again and decided that, ideally, we'll try to shoot the cover in a checked Burberry shirt. I know the Duchess wants to look real, not as if she's in a vogue construct, and the shirt with its gold buttons and strong colour, seems a good option to me. There is the rail of gala Westwood, Erdem, Jenny Packham, that Lucinda has brought in case the Duchess feels prepared to go that route, but I'm sure that for the cover she will want something more every day. We agree that for the first shot, which is often tricky as nobody's warmed up, we'll suggest a blue and white striped dress and a leather apron. It's more costume than real clothes and I'm not sure she'll buy into that but she gamely puts on what is suggested. Digital photography means that it's possible now to see the pictures as they're shot and while Josh is shooting her and a vase of flowers in the little dressing room I can see the pictures coming up on a small screen shaded by a black fabric. She is laughing completely naturally and it looks as if the sun is shining onto the painted walls. At that moment, I know it's going to be okay.
0: Why was the Duchess of Cambridge the perfect cover star for your centenary issue? Because previously you'd you'd always had... Typographic yeah, covers. Type, yeah.
1: yeah, because I'd always tried to avoid having a person to encapsulate a sort of a really big occasion. But I think because she's probably the most famous woman in the country and somebody that people are intrigued by, both here and abroad. And also because she represents lots of different things. She represents royalty, obviously, fame, motherhood, celebrity, and in fact fashion to some degree. All things that we kind of engage with in the magazine. I thought she would be the ideal
0: fit. And did it sell in record numbers?
1: It sold extremely well. We had a cover that was the Millennium issue, which mm-hmm. had nothing on it. It was a silver cover with nothing but a few cover lines, and um, that issue sold more, in fact. But magazines in general now sell less than they did. A lot of magazines have really dropped massively in Prince their of the print circulation. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't think any magazine would sell as much as it as it would have. 16 years ago anyway. But she sold definitely a bestseller for the last two or three years.
0: So you obviously need to stand out on a new stand to sell magazine. So is there a science to choosing a cover for an issue of Vogue?
1: I wish there was an exact science. I wish there was a formula where you said A plus B plus C equals A, B, C. Box ticked. Yeah. You've got a perfect cover. There absolutely is not. Covers as you pointed out, have to sell on a newsstand. So they've got to attract the eye. Mm. But our cover also has to appeal to a kind of an industry audience because a lot of Vogue is bought by the fashion industry. It's got to say something about fashion and style at the moment.
0: Well... From a shoot in the Norfolk countryside to your next object, something that goes with you around the world, this is your very large suitcase.
1: Yes, I chose my Globetrotter suitcase, which is one of those kind of Mm old-fashioned sort of almost, it's not cardboard, but almost (laughs) cardboardy suitcases because that suitcase goes with me whenever I travel for work. And sort of when I go to the shows, I have to take quite, proper clothes, Mm -hmm. you know, suits and coats and dresses. So the solid framework of the suitcase is... um, Keeps everything intact. Keeps everything intact. Also, nobody else travels with a suitcase like this, so you can recognise it on the carousel quickly.
0: But what I'm intrigued by is that... I've had luggage lost so many times and only travel with hand luggage no matter where I'm going for how long. Can't you have clothes that would be waiting at the other, <laughs> at the other end for you so you didn't have to wait at the luggage carousel?
1: <sighs> oh, in my dreams. But, I mean, the idea of travelling with – I can't even go away for a weekend with hand luggage, let alone do a week of fashion shows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's hear again. I'm sorry to have brought this up then. From the <laughs> audiobook of Inside Vogue, a Diary of My 100th Year, here you describe the glorious circus of the fashion show.
1: 16th of September. It's practically impossible to provide a logical rationale for the existence of fashion shows today. Originally, they enabled relevant press and buyers to see what a designer was producing. The former would report on what would eventually be available and the buyers ordered clothes that reached their store five or six months later. Now across the four main fashion cities, New York, London, Paris and Milan, there are, at a conservative estimate, more than 300 shows on the formal schedule, which doesn't take into account the hundreds of off-schedule shows and presentations, and that number again of showroom appointments. The audiences are huge, seated in feudal order, with those each fashion house deems the most important in the front row, and stretching back, sometimes two or three rows, often more. Viewing a show is no longer the preserve of the fortunate. Many can be watched via live streaming, or more often Instagram or Snapchat, posted by the audience or the company. And much of what you see may never reach the stores, since the big spend from the buyers has taken place in advance from more basic commercial collections. The show enables a designer to present their vision in its purest form. The looks are put together in the way their creator wants, worn by models they choose, accessorised by a set or music designed to enhance what we see in a location that adds to the atmosphere. And more than that, this glorious circus is about the buzz and collective opinion forming that happens when you've amassed a band of interested parties in one place. It's about the excitement that develops when these people see something they admire and want to acquire for their fashion shoot, their front cover, their store, or even for themselves. The incalculable impetus that occurs around the shows is why my presence is vital. To be absent is to miss the game in which I'm a player, even though at times it seems I spend a lot of days sitting on a bench, waiting for a 15-minute show to begin, then sitting again, waiting for a traffic jam to ease.
0: That is an extract from Inside Vogue, a diary of my 100th year. On to your next object. This is your copy of Joan Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Could you tell me about it, please? It's a battered old penguin Mm -hmm. copy of Slouching Towards
1: Bethlehem that I think, well, I know I got in 1975 because I've put the date inside with my name.
0: Um, When you were 18 years old?
1: When I was 18 years old, exactly. And she's a huge heroine of mine, Joan Didion. I just think she's the most brilliant writer. I wouldn't in any way claim that this diary is anything like Joan Didion, but I read this book or bits out of it again and again and again. I found with writing that it's quite useful to read somebody that you admire. Mm -hmm. It kind of just gives you a kind of a lift somehow to write yourself, even though you know you're not going to write something as good as what, what they write. But also in here is a brilliant essay called um, On Keeping a Notebook. And I do keep notebooks. And she's got a very interesting take on keeping a notebook about how it's it's not actually about what you observe. It's more about you than it is about what you observe. It's actually a very kind of narcissistic thing to do. And I thought that was a really interesting point and realised that, of course, this whole diary is a very narcissistic exercise.
0: I'm exactly a year older than you, I think, and have kept a diary since I was 10 years old. So does that make us fellow narcissists? I
1: think it does. Well, I think...
0: It never feels like that to me. No, but it doesn't
1: feel like that to me either. Somebody told me when I was very young, that the interesting thing to put into diaries was not what I actually did for years and years, which is, oh, I'm so miserable, I'm so depressed, um, why is so-and-so not wrung me, um, I can't bear it, I'm in love and it's so painful. That was what my diary was for years. But actually, he said to me, the interesting thing is you must write down things like how much a cup of tea cost, because it's details like that of the world at that period of time, which when you look back,
0: is what will be interesting, not, oh, my heart is broken. So if you had to look back when you were 18 in 1975, reading Joan Didion, were you heartbroken and miserable?
1: 18, yes, I think I've been heartbroken (laughs) a large part of my life. I'm almost (laughs) positive I was at 18, yes.
0: Okay. let's turn back to Inside Vogue now. Here you ponder what is perhaps the darkest side of the fashion industry.
1: On Friday, I've agreed to be interviewed about an upcoming parliamentary inquiry on body image. I must be crazy. It will just descend into the usual complaints about models being too thin and looking unhealthy. But I feel it's important to try to open up a more helpful line of questioning. Weighing models for their BMI is clearly insane, as if they were heifers or Tamworth pigs. I'm not even sure it would ever be legal to legislate against employment on the basis of weight. But it's certainly true that the fashion industry is often blinkered when it comes to using very thin girls to model, and I don't mind admitting that. What will be hard to explain is why, if I feel that way, I can't wave a magic wand in my capacity as editor of Vogue and change it.
0: How long have they got? This issue of body image is ongoing. You say that even as editor of a, you can't fix that. So who do you think is responsible?
1: I think there's collective responsibility. I don't think that there's any one constituency which are entirely to blame. I think that the people that it would be the most helpful to change would be the designers and the catwalk shows because the designers create a sample collection in the catwalk shows, Mm -hmm. and those samples are what all magazines use to photograph fashion on. And the girls who walk the catwalk are very slim, Mm -hmm. and the clothes are fitted on them. And so you've then got these small samples, which mean that, you've got to use models that will actually fit those samples. So if the samples were made a bit larger, then it would allow us to photograph larger girls. But I think what you really want to have is a mixture. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being very thin. What is wrong is to only be able to see clothes on very thin girls. And what is wrong is if models are made to lose weight in order to fit unrealistically slim clothes.
0: So you want to see a, a, a bigger mixture of body shapes in fashion magazines?
1: I do want to see a bigger mixture of, of body shapes in fashion magazines and I think it is happening. We recently published an issue which I called The Real Issue and everything's been shot on women who aren't models. Mm-hmm. So that meant that the clothes had to fit them, obviously. But it was an interesting way of showing that fashion looks great if you don't use models. Different, but great.
0: Um, so Vogue and... meets good housekeeping.
1: <laughs> Vogue meets uh, a lot of, lot of things, actually. It's sort of Engineering Monthly as well. We have a um, fantastic crew who've all worked on crossrail, women working on crossrail that we photographed in fantastic floral dresses, for instance.
0: So there's obviously a call for change within the fashion industry. Do you think that there's going to be a resolution to this problem anytime soon, or do you think that it's...?
1: I think as long as there have been designers, in the form that we know them, Mm -hmm. seem to have always worked with slim...
0: Taller, thinner, longer.
1: Yeah. I mean, even if you go right back to the Worths or the Madame Lanvin, their drawings are very... Slim illustrations were very slim before photography. Um, so I don't think that suddenly a size 14 is going to be, even though actually a size 14 to 16 is the national average, mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to become what designers will want to work with.
0: So travelling to the major fashion cities for shows, do you feel pressure to dress the part? Because you describe your struggles with shopping in the book, getting lost in salvages, for instance.
1: I don't feel a great pressure to dress the part, actually, because I decided when I got the job that that would be something that I wouldn't do, really. I think there's an idea of a Vogue editor, which is somebody who is, you know, very, very immaculate and fashion. And I knew I'd never be able to do that. I knew that that wasn't me. And it was very important to me to to be me, and I love clothes, I love choosing what to wear, but i didn 't want to try and make myself look like somebody that i didn
0: 't feel I was On to your next object, your music library. What sort of music do you use to escape after a long day at the office?
1: I love music. I first wanted to work in the music industry before I went into magazines, and uh, my first jobs were in the music industry. I listen to it a lot and I play it when I run and I play it at home and I played it quite a lot when I was writing the book. I have a bit of a penchant for sort of slightly kind of tragic, heartbroken (laughs) women singers. singers. Not so much torch singers, actually. I'm more kind of slightly more kind of folky and indie than that. Not so much kind of blues or belting it out.
0: Did you like Janice Ian Um, when you were a teenager?
1: At 17. Yes. (laughs) I did. Yeah, yeah. No,
0: I lived with somebody when I was at university who just played that incessantly. So and I you can probably you
1: never, never hear it now.
0: No, I love it. <laughs> Do you have any guilty pleasures in your music collection?
1: No, I don't. I don't think. I mean, sometimes I find you know if you buy on iTunes and once you've bought something, then mm-hmm. it comes up with a kind of if you like this, yes, you'll like, you'll like that. And sometimes I see I've bought something. <laughs> which has somehow led the most sort of terrible kind of naff train of sort of, like Burt Bacharach, for instance. There's a lot of those songs. Because what I quite like is when you get a cover version, you get a contemporary band Mm -hmm. who will do a cover version of an old song. But I'm often mortified by my, well, you like this, so I think you're going to love that.
0: Yeah, I absolutely sympathise with that. (laughs) We've talked about the lifestyle of a Vogue editor, but much of your time is spent in your office at Vogue House. I'm sure lots of listeners will be expecting a Devil Wears Prada environment.
1: I think the office is really nice place. And I think most of the people that work on the magazine and have worked on the magazine are very happy there. It is predominantly female. Yeah, I would love to have more men in the office, but it is predominantly long. female. It's one of the things I've missed when I left working on a newspaper and came to Vogue was that suddenly I felt like I was in a, in a girl's school. But it's not bitchy. It is competitive. I think everybody really wants to do their best. And that always makes for competition. But it's a really
0: nice office. That's very reassuring. Turning back to your book, Inside Vogue, here you describe the result of a lot of your hard work over the year, the launch of the Vogue exhibition At the National Portrait Gallery.
1: The night is almost impossible to write about, as there was so much to experience, so many people to greet. Zandra Rhodes, with her violent pink hair, who is always so friendly and enthusiastic. My oldest friends from outside fashion, whom I tried to talk to but was continually distracted from. The photographer Peter Lindbergh from Paris, who has taken so many great Vogue pictures including the famous group Supermodel cover in 1990. Snowden's daughter Frances was there, representing him as he is now a little fragile for such a crowd, and I spoke to Diana Donovan under one of her husband Terence's great shots. Only Bailey was missing, even though we'd given him his own wall of images. Regan Cameron, who has shot a number of celebrities for us, said he felt so emotional about his illuminated portrait of Kate Winslet. Emotional, that word. Everyone was using it, not happy or sad or disappointed or excited, but emotional. And probably, for many of us, the emotions are mixed, a sense of melancholy over the passage of time pictures that we remember seeing when we were young. Where have the intervening years gone? The usual toll that time has taken on many of the crowd displayed on the walls not only in their physical prime, but invested at that point with the luster of vogue. And at the same time, I saw real pleasure in the rooms that came from a sense of achievement in artists, subjects, or Vogue staffers, and from others in simply being there, in the midst of it all. But for some, perhaps, there was a more complicated reaction to having once been part of the world that is Vogue and not being part of it any longer.
0: That is an extract from Inside Vogue, A Diary of My Hundredth Year. You talk about the passing of time in that extract, Alex. What has changed over the course of your career at Vogue?
1: So much has changed in the 24 years I've been at Vogue because I think the advent of digital has changed all journalism and the way that we work has changed because you've got the immediacy of digital and the reach of digital, which you didn't have when you were just doing print, But as well as that, the fashion industry has changed enormously. I mean, it's grown hugely in that amount of time at every level. I mean, the, the high street has got so many great shops that have brought fashion to everybody. And the designers who were, perhaps they had one store in London, but perhaps they weren't even in London. Now there are millions of them. Every designer internationally has got at least one store in London. And I think that fashion literacy in general has grown so that more people are interested in fashion by far than were when I first came.
0: Mm -hmm. So speaking about time ties into your next object, which is your watch. Can you tell me about this, please?
1: It's a very simple round face with a brown leather strap more like a man's watch. It's not all singing, all dancing. It doesn't have lots of kind of chronograph dials and No no bling. And it's not very delicate either. But I really like it. And I chose it because writing a diary, you have this sort of engagement with time that is quite extraordinary. I made a rule for myself in this book that no matter how tempted I might be to revise what I had written, Mm -hmm. I would not let myself because it might be more circumspect, but it would make it a boring and less truthful book. So I was writing every day or every two days or whatever. And I'd be writing about what I was thinking or what I was dreading or what I thought might happen. And then a week later or a month later or six months later, that thing would have happened. And so it became something I was very aware of, this, this business that we all deal with, which is that the future becomes the past. Mm-hmm. And so the watch is really symbolic of that process of chronicling a future and a present
0: and your which determination the to keep it authentic.
1: My determination, which is really true, and I know that some people will think that I did revise things, but I absolutely didn't. And I was, for instance, quite interested in how all the way through I kept saying I'm worried about the possibility of Brexit from relatively early on. Mm-hmm. and And that was genuine. I didn't put that in after the ghastly event happened.
0: What impact do you think Brexit will have or has had on fashion already.
1: We haven't yet seen a huge impact, but I think the the danger would be if we were less able to work internationally, both to have people coming in to work in the industry in this country and for us to be able to work outside, because I think fashion is a really, really international industry and you can't silo it, you can't just be a British brand that doesn't engage with the rest of the world. And if that became more difficult, that would be a big problem. Yeah,
0: it's exactly the same in my profession. You talked in that extract about the people who are no longer part of the world that is Vogue. You've overseen almost a quarter of British Vogue's output so far. Can you imagine your life without the magazine?
1: I can imagine my life without the magazine, I don't know what my life would be. I don't have a picture of what my life would be, but I've always Baking thought <laughs> I've always thought yeah, there've been a lot of cooking going on. <laughs> I've always thought that it was really important to to have a life outside of the magazine and um although I work very hard and you know I love Vogue and I love my job, I have never defined myself through the magazine. So I feel very confident that I'd be all right without the magazine. But I do love the magazine.
0: What is next for you? Do you have more big plans for British Vogue?
1: Well, I think we've got to, you know, digital is something that although we were very early on with digital, our vogue.co.uk, our website was one of the first magazine websites. We're still learning quite a lot and we still got to grow digital and we have to make digital arm more profitable as well because print journalism people pay for Mm -hmm. digital most of it's accessed free and you know it is the big elephant in the room that although everyone talks about digital and it being you know the great new thing it's a problem that it it doesn't finance itself. And newspapers in particular have been struggling with this because, you know, you you can get news for free anywhere. So if you start charging for news online, that's very difficult for them. But on the other hand, by giving everything away free, that's crazy. So I think one of the things I'm interested in really looking at is seeing what with my business hat on, where we can make some more money out of the digital arm and at the same time, you know, carry on producing a real kind of luxury treat in the body of the print magazine.
0: And on that note, cheers. (laughs) And here's to the next 25, Alexandra. Thank you very, very much.
1: Thank you, Richard. The first thing Sophia Amaruso sold online wasn't fashion, it was a stolen book. At age 17, she was a dumpster-diving, shoplifting anarchist. By 29, she was the founder and CEO of Nasty Girl, a $100 million-plus fashion empire. Filled with brazen wake-up calls, frank observations, and behind-the-scenes stories from Nasty Girl's meteoric rise, Hashtag Girlboss is more than just Amaruso's story. It's a book for anyone seeking a unique path to success.
2: There is no dignity quite so impressive and no independence quite so important as living within your means. Calvin Coolidge I never set out to be rich. I had no idea my company was worth anything until venture capitalists started knocking on my door. Your company is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and you own this much of it, and so now you yourself are worth this much. It was shocking how fast it all happened. Nasty Gal went from doing $150,000 a year to doing $150,000 a day, and now we do $150,000 over lunch. I think that part of the reason Nasty Gal has been so successful is because my goals were never financial ones. I believed in what I was doing, and fortunately other people believed in it as well. I cared as much about the process as I did about the results. No decision was too small. Whether it was the word choice in a product description or the expression on a model's face, I treated everything with the utmost care. At the time, this was just because, like I said before, I'm the kind of person who pays attention to something as small as the crooked shipping label. In hindsight, I see that it's those small things that can make or break a business. My adopted political ideals had let me approach money with an elevated level of distaste, I saw it as a materialistic pursuit for materialistic people, but what I have realized over time is that in many ways, money spells freedom. If you learn to control your finances, you won't find yourself stuck in jobs, places, or relationships that you hate just because you can't afford to go elsewhere. Learning how to manage your money is one of the most important things you'll ever do. Being in a good spot financially can open up so many doors. Being in a bad spot can slam them in your face. And being broke gets old, so start making smart decisions now to avoid paying for stupid ones later. Credit cards blow. I wasn't always stealing stuff. Sometimes I went the conventional route when I wanted something. I went to a store and, you know, paid for it. And it was on one of these crazy such occasions that I managed to make a legitimate purchase and ruin my credit in one fell swoop.
1: Girlboss is available now on iTunes and Audible.